God, thank you again for this opportunity to be together as guys, and thank you for uh, good fellowship and good fun, good food, and, and now as we consider this next and final topic for the day, we pray that you'd just speak to us, keep us alert and awake, and I pray that you would uh, really work in each of our lives so that we see our daily uh, work for what you intended it to be, and I pray that you would uh, help each man in this room to have a fresh vision for his calling and his work life, Lord. Uh, I pray that you, for some in the room, maybe this would be a, a time to transform how they view Monday to Friday. And for others, may it just be a, a reminder and a refresher in the gift of work and the calling you've given each of us. So please help us uh, to listen and to learn from your word. Speak to us and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if the first session was about your place matters, uh, and that's kind of a big picture. I'm going to narrow it, and this is going to be your work matters. So I want to talk about work. And, you know, uh, I'll try to refer to the outline when I'm there. I'm going to say a lot of stuff that's not on the outline, and I'm not going to say everything that's on the outline. So I'll try to keep you current with what you have in front of you. But uh, as an introduction, I just want to say that we all really need a biblically informed view of work, a theology of work. And the reason is because we give more time to our work than anything else. If you think about what your week looks like, uh, how many hours you spend, you don't spend as many hours probably on any activity like you do your work. Uh, some of you, it's not even close. I mean, some of it's like, boy, I don't, uh, second place might be sleep, you know, or something like that. But, uh, but most of us, it's what we spend the majority of our time on. So if it's what we give most of our life to, uh, we should want to understand God's perspective of it and his calling for it. Now, when I've taught on this topic before, there's always a real funny guy, real comedian in the room uh, that wants to always say to me, why is a pastor talking about work? You only work one hour a week. Actually, we have two, two services, so you only work two hours a week. And they all think they're the first person to ever make that joke. And uh, I, I always just want to say to them, you know what, my full-time job is to help you grow in godliness and maturity. And I can't think of a more difficult job on the planet <laughs> right now when you're telling me this joke. I have the hardest job in the world to ensure your godliness, uh, which is not your pastor's job, but you know what I'm saying. So anyway, uh, anyway, why, why work? What is the importance of work and that your work matters? Now, I'm going to use the word work a lot today. And the word work is broadly used. It could, it could uh, speak of what you do for a job. It could speak of schoolwork, housework, uh, church volunteer work, uh, it, all kinds of different kinds of work. But when I'm saying work, what I primarily mean is this, your paid employment. What is it that you do for your occupation? Uh, who pays you to do what, what you do? That, that's what I'm talking about work. Or if you're a full-time student, uh, I'm talking about your school work. Or if you're retired, I'm talking about what is it you sort of do with your days. You do something with your days. Maybe you volunteer. Maybe you help out with the grandkids. So if you're retired, I don't know if there's anybody retired in the room. But if you're retired, what is it you give your days to? Um, if you have a job, who's paying you? If you're not, if you're between jobs, maybe your full-time job's looking for a job. But you'll have one soon, uh, and you've had one, so you know what we're talking about. So school or paid work. And another reason I think it's important we have a biblical view is I think a lot of us have a Christian view about family, about church, maybe even things like health, uh, taking care of our bodies or, uh, you know, any number of things. We have a sort of a Christian view, but many of us have essentially a secular view of work. We think, well, that's just what I do 
to pay the bills so that I can do my Christian stuff with my family or my church. Um, but it's, that, that's not true at all. God has a plan for your work, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So the first point on here is what, you know, why your work matters. Number one, God works. So if we're going to speak about a theology of work, we want to start with God. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And creation is an act of work. So the first, really, two things we learn about God is he's eternal. These are the first things we learn about God in the whole Bible. He's eternal. So at the grand opening of the universe, he's already there. He's there before creation. Uh, God crea- The second thing we learn is that God created, that he's a worker. First thing we learn about him. Um, Genesis 2 makes this really clear. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, <coughs> excuse me, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God not only creates as a worker, but he also sustains what he's made. So in theology, that's called God's providence, that God keeps everything going, um, He works constantly. Psalm 121 says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. That's in your outline, Psalm 121, 3 through 4. So not only does God create, but he is constantly sustaining everything that's going on. God didn't just create and let let everything manage itself. That's deism, the view of deism, that uh, God wound up the clock and now it runs. But biblical, theolo- bi- bi- biblical truth is that God keeps everything going. Every molecule in the universe is dependent upon God for its existence. Every person on the planet right now, God is keeping their heart beating. The minute God says your time is up, your time is up. So he is working and managing an infinite number of details in all the universe. No one works like God. God is a worker. When God came in the flesh and moved into the neighborhood, as John 1, we read earlier today, uh, Jesus, the Son of God, was a worker. Uh, He worked, um, well, I put in here, he worked as a carpenter for 30 years. He probably probably didn't do that in his first early uh, ages, you know, one and two. But once he started working with his dad, (coughs) he was a carpenter, carpenter, and then after that, for three years, he was what we might call like a vocational minister, kind of like a rabbi. He was a rabbi of sorts. That's what he was. Um, Even in his messianic role, he viewed himself as a worker. John 4, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So even his ministry was work that God had given him to do. So the first thing we learned about work is it didn't start with us. It didn't start with your boss. It started with God, and God by nature is a worker. Number two in your outline, God created men and women uh, to work. But this is a man's conference, so we're just saying men. God created men to work. Uh, The Bible says that there in Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. So humans are created to have dominion, to rule over God's creation, to take care of God's good creation, and that includes our work. In Genesis 2, I referred to this in the first session, but in Genesis 2 in your outline there, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, I'm going to spend just a second on this verse because there's a, there's a 
a couple of truths here that really inform what you do Monday to Friday or whenever your work is, whenever your work schedule is. There's a quote in your outline here from Richard Phillips who wrote a book called The Masculine Mandate. And in that, he says this about Genesis 2. To work, you see that verb work in there, to work is to labor to make things grow in terms of nurturing, cultivating, tending, building up, guiding, and ruling. To keep, that's the second word there, to keep the garden, uh, to keep is to protect and to sustain progress already achieved as guarding, keeping safe, watching over, uh, caring for, and maintaining. So what he's saying is there's two verbs that uh, in Hebrew that are in Genesis 2, that man is put in the garden to work it and to keep it. And he's saying these two verbs mean different things. The verb to work there means to cultivate, to create, to develop. And the word to keep it means to protect it or to maintain it, and this is all before the fall, so we don't have the fall yet. This is just creation. So uh, I find this very helpful because most of our jobs are either a development job or maintenance protection kind of job, um, or maybe you have a job, many of us would have jobs that have both of those dynamics. Many people hate one of those parts of their job and love the other part of their job. So what we're saying is that Adam was called to plant and grow at one level, uh, the garden, but he was also called to maintain it and to keep it safe. This is like saying some are building in construction, some are maintaining. Some are sales, some are service. That's, that's literally what this means. Sales and service is the verb work and keep. I mean, not literally, but that would be a fair application of what he means there. So in that way, if your work could be about creating or developing, growing, some of us have that kind of a role. So I want you to think about this. When you do your job, you are doing the same thing Adam was called to do before the fall. Before there's any sin in the world, he is called to develop the garden. So that's what you're doing when you hire someone. Or if you make a sale, you are working, this verb work. Um, if you are installing whatever it is that you install, when you're writing code or teaching students or creating a graphic design, that's this developmental calling. Uh, when you're laying out a new initiative for your staff, uh, if you're in construction and you're uh, framing a new home or a remodel, uh, you're doing framing work, that's this work. If you produce something in a factory, uh, if you uh, are a marketer and you market a product, that's sort of development. If you design a landscape, or if you build a website, or if you're writing copy, whatever it is that you do, th there's some of us are doing that kind of developmental, cultivating, expanding kind of work. And then there's jobs that are more like keep it, which is the maintaining. So if you are, uh, it's about maintaining and preserving. If you're cleaning the shop where you work, or organizing the files, auditing the books, doing paperwork. Some people in the room hate paperwork. I uh, think that had to happen after the fall, but that's part of keeping it. So, you know, there wasn't literally paperwork, but I trust you follow what I'm saying before the fall. That's part of God's good creation. If you provide security, either virtual like cyber security or physical property security, that's maintaining. That's the keeping of the garden. Uh, if you do maintenance on the server, if you fill out an expense report, if you work in customer service, in these days, if you work in customer service, God bless you because everybody's on their last nerve, so God bless you if that's your work. If you troubleshoot an IT problem, if you repair an engine in a car, these are ways that we 
uh, keep the garden. So our work is developmental and cultivating. God gives that to us, and it's preserving and maintaining. In, in your notes here, work is not a result of the fall, but it is made difficult by the fall. So there is this working and keeping before the fall. Adam and Eve sin, and then there is a curse. And the curse makes work difficult. It, it brings toil to our work. So Genesis 3.17 there in your outline says, And to Adam he said, <clears throat> Because you have sinned uh, and listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Look at this. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face uh, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So work is a gift. Work is the creation of God. Work God gives man when there is no fall. When there's fall, sin makes work difficult. So now there's thorns and thistles, and you work by the sweat of your brow. Thorns and thistles grow in our work. So uh, we get frustrated. We get tired. Things don't work. Because of the fall, uh, people don't do what they say they're going to do. People don't show up for the job. Um, your, your computer has a problem, and you can't get your work done. Your flight is canceled. That's happening a lot now. So you can't get to the place you need to make the sales uh, presentation. Here's a big one today. The parts are on back order. That's the fall. Everything's on back order. You can't get what you need. Uh, those are our thorns and thistles. The budget is cut. You're bone tired, but the deadline is still this Friday at 5 p.m. That's the sweat of your brow, the thorns and thistles. So we often can feel like work is a curse, but the Bible makes it clear that work is a gift. It's created. We're created in God's image. God's a worker, so we're created to be like him. But because of sin, there's a curse, and now work is difficult. Uh, there's a quote in your outline from Gene Veith there, God and Work is the book. It says, this then is the human condition. Work is a blessing. Work is a curse. I might change that a little bit and say work is a blessing. Uh, the effect of the fall means our work has cursed aspects to it. That's probably a better way to say it. Work can indeed be satisfying since it's what we were made for, but it can also be frustrating, pointless, and exhausting. Work is a virtue, but it is tainted by sin. So any biblical talk about work has to include this aspect. We want to say it's a gift of God. We want to say we were created for it. We want to say we encounter God in it. We want to say we image God the worker when we work. But we also want to be real and say it's a beating. Work is very difficult sometimes, and that's because uh, the ground is cursed, the world is cursed, and there are thorns and thistles in all, our, all of our work. Now, the woman's cursed as well, if you'll remember. You remember that? Pain and childbearing. So on your worst day, on your worst day at work, say, this is bad, but I'm not pushing a human out between my legs without anesthesia. So, that, so uh, we, we may have gotten the better end of the curse between the men and the women on that deal. That's in the, if you're new to the Bible, ask Jeff. He'll tell you where that is. You can read that in G Genesis 3 and explain what I'm talking about. Okay, number three, God redeems our work. So God creates, God is a worker, God creates us for work, God redeems our work. The gospel, letter A here, 3A, gives believers a new purpose. So the power of the gospel doesn't change the difficulty of work. If you have a job, you have difficulty in a job, you become a Christian, it doesn't 
change your work, but it changes the worker. Uh, the, the gospel changes us, and it, 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 there's thorns and thistles until Christ returns. But God gives us a new vision and a new purpose for our work. We're not going to work with ease until the new heavens and new earth where there won't be thorns and thistles and there won't be the sweat of our brow, I trust. Um, But when you become a Christian, Christ reorients your life so that now you have purpose in your work. As a Christian, you can find, you you should find, God wants us to find purpose in all that we do. Um, We now live our lives as a living sacrifice. So even a messy workplace or problems and obstacles in our work, we're still called to offer our work uh, in worship to the Lord. So once you become a Christian, here's the reality. Everything matters in your life because everything is to be offered for the glory of God. Before you're a Christian, all of your work is for you. Or maybe in the most noble context, it's for your family. Um, but it's about you. It's really, it's a self-oriented kind of thing. But once you become a Christian, now Jesus is your Lord, you have a new master, and you get a new purpose that you live your life for his glory. In your, in your uh, outline there, Romans 12, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. So you have a new purpose as a believer. When you're working a spreadsheet, that is as much worship as the song we just sang uh, this morning uh, when we're singing together. We tend to think, well, I'm hearing a guy preach. This must be a worship experience. But the reality is you're to offer all of life as a living sacrifice. The unbeliever doesn't have that vision, doesn't have that picture. It's all about them. They have to solve all their own problems. They're, they're an end unto themselves. But the Christian has a new, redeemed by Christ, has a new vision and a new purpose for work. Let her be there. The gospel gives believers a new calling. The word vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, and it means calling. So vocation is a calling, and all Christians are called into God's service. If Romans 12, if we offer everything to the Lord, if we live as living sacrifices and we offer everything, that's worship language, as worship to the Lord, then that means whatever we're doing for his glory is ultimately worship. I'm not saying that everything, uh, you know, is perhaps equally uh, meaningful in a moment to us, but I am saying that everything can be offered to the Lord as worship. That means, and, and I mean this seriously, and I know Jeff agrees with me, whatever you do before the Lord is absolutely as important as what Jeff does when he stands here and preaches a sermon. That's not the preacher thing to say, wink, wink, well, yeah, we know what he does is really more spiritual. No, that is the truth. Because we live in the new covenant, saved by Christ, so that all of our life is offered to him in worship, and the secular, a, a secular sacred distinction is broken. That means that, you know, singing a song here, in worship, and you, uh, you know, uh, playing catch with your son can both be done for the glory of God. We don't have parts of our life that are spiritual and parts that are secular. All of life is to be lived for the glory of God, which gives tremendous meaning to whatever you do during the week. Uh, it means that it is completely valuable that you have a role where you are to act for the glory of God and the love of your neighbor so that your neighbor may flourish. Whatever you do, it's to contribute in some way in the world. I I shouldn't say whatever. If there's someone in here that does something illegal, you can't 
sell drugs or be like a, a hitman for the glory of God, killing people. There are jobs you can't do for the glory of God. But assuming you do something that's illegal and uh, not immoral, uh, then whatever you do is, is worship. And I, I, you know, in traditional religious environments, that's not true. You know, traditionally, there's the clergy and, like, there's a ranking in a lot of people's minds, like the ultimate missionary, like missionary martyr. That's number one. You die in the mission field, that's the number one calling. Then after that would be pastor in a hard area, teaching the Bible. And then after that would be, you know, uh, pastor in an easier area, not as challenging. And then after that would be maybe Christian social worker that's really helping people. You know, so we rank all these things like God must think that way. And the really special people are the missionaries and the, the, the you know, then uh, that's varsity. And then junior varsity is pastors. And then like middle school is, you know, God doesn't rank it like that. God says, I've given you gifts, I've wired you a certain way, I've given you opportunities, I've put you in a place, I've given you a job so that you will uh, represent me and do that for my glory. God is actually pleased with your work and what you do to serve him and serve others. So if you get this, um, it's profound because it means there's dignity and value to all lawful work. Colossians 3, again, in the outline, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, that passage is um, talking about eating and drinking food and, uh, and, and off, uh, food that's offered to idols. Very, there's a context there, but the statement, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, does apply broadly. In his book, Work and Leisure, uh, Leland Riken writes, Christian service to God does, occur, uh, does not occur in a sacred space such as the church, but in, our, in the everyday routine. As Luther put it, Martin Luther, the reformer, if we viewed the matter aright, the entire world would be full of service to God. Not only the churches, but also the home, the kitchen, the cellar, the workshop, and the field of the townsfolk and farmers. So Luther, part of the Reformation, you know, last week was Reformation Day. Part of the Reformation where Luther broke out from the Catholic Church, one of the biggest things we always think he taught, well, he recovered the Bible for the people, or he taught that uh, we're justified by grace through faith and not our works. He did that. But he also brought dignity. One of the big parts of the Reformation was that all of a sudden it wasn't just the priest that was holy and the people did secular labor, but all of work could be holy unto the Lord. That was a recovered truth that's a big part of the Reformation uh, and, and our heritage. So viewing your calling as being part of something significant that really matters for the glory of God can change how you experience your job. I, I read a story about John F. Kennedy, you know, who had set a, in his presidency, had set a goal to reach the moon by the end of the decade. He said that in the 60s. And so he was touring NASA one time. And as he was touring around NASA, as they're preparing, you know, ultimately to hope to launch into space, uh, he met a custodian, um, a janitor at NASA, and, and asked the guy, what is it that you do? And the custodian said to him, my job is helping us get to the moon. My job is helping us get to the moon. Now, how is he accomplishing that? 
by ensuring there were clean bathrooms, by ensuring there wasn't an overflow of trash in the work areas, but it was taken out, by ensuring that there was a clean, safe environment for people to work in. But he didn't say, I'm the trash, I, I, dis I distribute, I take the trash out, or I clean the bathrooms. Oh, he did that. But he said, my job is to something much greater than what it looks like on the surface of what I'm doing. I'm helping us get to the moon, a much greater cause. And so in your job as well, whatever you are doing, if someone were to ask you what is the cause, I am working for the glory of God so that God is pleased, so that people are served, so that, uh, so that people are uh, benefit by what I am doing. There's a bigger cause. There's a bigger cause than going to the moon than we're called to, and that's the glory of God. So if I'm and if I'm accounting, I'm doing it for something much greater. If I'm teaching school, I'm doing it for something much greater. I'm serving God's mission where I am. Um, now, maybe you say, well, that's fine, but what if I'm not really doing what I was made to do or what I'm gifted to do? Some of us are working at something that maybe you say, this isn't my dream or my goal or what I hope to do. It's something, um, uh, you know, I lived in L.A. for a number of years and three out of four citizens were all waiting tables while they were waiting to get a job in a film or sell their screenplay or, you know, it was this environment. So everybody was doing something that they really didn't want to do until they could get the, what they were really created to do. That was kind of the L.A. way. Um, so maybe you're that. Maybe I'm doing this job. I'm driving Uber for Uber until I can get a job what I want to do. Well, I would say this. Um, driving, for Uber, driving an Uber is what God's got you doing today. So that may not be your lifelong dream, but that's what you're doing today. And that's an opportunity to honor God today and serve people today, getting them where they need to go in a safe manner and engaging them perhaps along the way in a loving manner. That, that is a job that may not be your ultimate. Maybe it is your ultimate. nothing wrong with that if that is your ultimate job. But even if it's not and it's something you're doing until you land uh, the job you trained for, um, then you, you still have a calling. That's what God has you doing today. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. That's what you're doing today. So how can you serve God? Uh, how can you love your neighbor who's sitting in your back seat? And uh, how can you get them where they need to be safely? Actually, if you're picking up people from bars and stuff, you're, you're saving people's lives is what you're doing driving in an Uber so they're not behind the wheel of a car killing somebody. So you're rescuing. You're, you're preserving. That's key. But you're preserving life by what you're doing. Um, in a role like that. So even if it's temporary work, it still has a glory to it. Um, it's, a call, it's your calling today if it's not your calling forever. Number four, God uses our work to cultivate our dependence upon him. So if our goal is to be aware of our dependence and honor the Lord with our lives, God's going to use your job maybe as much as anything else to create dependence in your life. So Sunday you come here and hear a sermon. You'll be here tomorrow. You'll hear a sermon. But Monday, when you get to your job, there's a sermon speaking to you too. And it's you need God. Your work is communicating to you. It is hard. It is difficult. And you need God to empower you to do what he's called you to do. I love this verse, Psalm 127. Unless, it's in your outline. Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. What's God saying? That we're dependable upon him. We ultimately need him to build the house. 
uh, which may refer to a family as well as a structure. But the city doesn't. The city, he's, he's talking about literal watchmen here. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman uh, stays awake in vain. So you may look out for the enemy. You may notify everybody when the enemy's coming. But if God doesn't sustain the city, you ain't going to make it. And so whatever our calling, whatever our work is, we need God to sustain us. And so I think our jobs are an environment to constantly cultivate um, our dependence upon God. I think there's some of us that pray about our, if you're married, you pray about your marriage. If you're not married and want to be, you pray about getting married. You pray for your kids and your parenting. You pray for your aches and your pains. You pray for your finances. Um, But truth be told, we don't enter our work day and throughout the day, communicate our dependence and cry out to God and like interact with God throughout our work day in a way. And yet I think it's a primary place we're called to be dependent upon him. I'm reading a book right now uh, and it's a book, so I don't, I I left it at home. I can't read you the quote, but it's called The Common Rule and it's written by a guy who just took various practices and put them into his life. It's not legalistic, but he said, this is what I do to help me follow the Lord. And uh, this guy's got a high demand job. He's some kind of uh, attorney working contracts and so he's got this super demanding I read about I get tired just reading about his job in the book the guy works an insane amount of hours and so he put a practice in his life of morning uh, lunchtime and evening kneeling prayer he said he doesn't always kneel if he's in a meeting but if he's in his office he'll shut the door and kneel so he to call his attention. But he says the midday prayer is one of the most important parts of his day, even if it's very brief. Because he said, I start out every day with this big to-do list. I'm going to get all this stuff done. And by noon, reality sets in. I'm not going to get all this stuff done. And now I've got to fight through the afternoon. And I'm just not going to, I'm not God. I'm not going to accomplish everything. So he just said, he's not a pastor or anything like that. He's an attorney. So he says, in the middle of my day, I, I kneel in my office. Uh, if I can't, I do something physical. He says, I just put my palms up if I'm out somewhere and, you know, don't want to be a spectacle. And, uh, and I just say, Lord, you've been with me today. I've got the afternoon left to do. I've got th- I just depend upon you for what I have to help me to prioritize, help me to focus, help me to serve my clients, help me to uh, s- serve others in my communication in meetings. Uh, where I need to be tough, help me to do it in a way that honors you to be firm, but yes, but yes, loving of others. Just walks through and I say, I pray into my afternoon because it's oftentimes uh, I'll think about God in the morning and I don't think about him again until I get home. And uh, so I thought, boy, I don't, that may not be a discipline that works for you or you even want to do. But what could you do during your day where you are, I had a friend who I would sit with him and his alarm would go off on his phone sometimes. I'd say, what's that? He said, I set an alarm at certain times of the day to stop and think of the Lord. And it just went off in the middle of it. We're saying, what's that? Oh, that's my alarm. Where I, I need to pause right now and think about what I'm doing and communicate my dependence upon God because I can just run my life and not even think about him. Sometimes from Sunday to Sunday, you know, that's when I think about the Lord. So anyway, it's your work can create, God wants to create your dependence upon him. Number five, God meets us in our work. I love what Puritan Richard Steele said. He said that it's in, in the shop where you may most confidently expect the presence and blessing of God. Now, a lot of people would say, well, that's in the church, or that's in family devotions, or that's when I pray with my wife, or that's when I serve the poor and know I'm really doing something godly. Uh, that's when I confess a sin. But he says, in your work, you can know, you can expect the presence of blessing in, in God. God 
is active in your work, um, when you are doing your work, when you are your student, when you are studying, not just when you're sharing the gospel with a coworker. That's important, but sometimes we do the spiritual, secular, spiritual uh, thing, and we go, yeah, okay, I'm at work, that's all secular, but if I share my faith, that's spiritual. No, even doing your work itself unto the Lord is something pleasing to the Lord, not just the moment you share your faith, as, as valuable as that is. Um, whatever you're doing, when you are doing an expense report or returning a phone call or making a delivery, uh, enduring another boring meeting of the budget, uh, swinging a hammer, whatever you do, making a sales presentation, um, when done for the glory of God, these can be holy moments where we actually can engage God and meet with the Lord in our work. I have a quote on your outline there from Reichen again. He says, most Christians believe they can be a Christian at work. To do so involves being a diligent worker, being honest in one's dealings with an employer and witnessing to fellow workers. But this still leaves the work itself untouched by one's Christian faith. The original Protestants were right in going beyond this and claiming that the work itself is a spiritual issue and a means of glorifying God. We can be Christian not only in our work, but through our work if we view our work as an obedient response to God's calling. So I'm, I think we want to go farther than just saying uh, when you witness at work, it's godly. When you tell the truth at work, it's godly. It's actually when you contribute to what the company is doing, when you provide uh, protection, when you keep the garden. It wasn't just when Adam was in the garden saying a prayer to Jesus that it was valuable. It wasn't just when he was putting seed in the ground or whatever he was doing uh, that, you know, that, that there, and singing a, a praise song. That when he did that, it was valuable. It was actually working the garden itself glorified the Lord because God's a worker. So image, uh, Adam is imaging God when he's doing that. And that's true for you in your work as well. So that may be a stretch. I mean, I mean I've never thought of it that way. But uh, just think about how expansive your Christian discipleship would be if, if you really started to apply the gospel in all of life like your, your work. Number six, our work is discipleship, or maybe a better way to say that is it's an expression of our discipleship. Kind of saying the same thing in a different way. A, a disciple is a follower of Christ, and we follow Christ by learning his will and obeying him. A disciple is a servant of Christ, and through our work, we serve Christ. On the job, our ultimate focus is not serving our employer or our client or customer. That's very important, but it's serving Jesus. Now, there's a passage of Scripture that actually talks about this and says, when you do your work, do it for Jesus. Uh, and it's in Ephesians 6. And I need to say a little word about this before we jump into it because the first line is, slaves obey your earthly masters. So Paul is addressing people who were slaves at the time, and I'm actually going to make an application to workers. Um, I want to make very clear, the Bible does not endorse uh, slavery. Uh, the Bible does not advocate uh, slavery. And the kind of slaves that Paul it's, um, uh, is addressing here is not the kind of slavery we had in our country. Uh, it's not race-based slavery. These were not kidnapped individuals that were brought because of, uh, from, from another uh, continent, brought to America and dehumanized uh, because of the color of their skin, their race, and made to uh, be servants and lose all of their rights to be enslaved to other people. That's... that's that's abhorrent, 
And what was happening in Ephesus may have been bad, but it was nothing like that. Uh, in, in the Roman, in Paul's day when he's writing, up to a third of the people in some cities were slaves. Because slavery was not, um, it wasn't, it wasn't being owned by another person who took, you know, who bought you. It wasn't like that. A lot of uh, a lot of the slavery at the time was a way to pay off debts. They were often indentured servants. They almost always had a time to it. So you, I owe you this amount. I'm conscript, conscripted to a year of labor. And oftentimes they were high positions of authority. Could be a physician. Could manage the entire property for an owner. Uh, so I'm not minimizing and saying, boy, slavery was good then, but I'm saying it's not what we think of when we think of it that way. It was an environment where some of the jobs were certainly menial and difficult and maybe took a long time to pay off a debt, but many of them would be, well, working just like many of us do a job, but instead of a paycheck, you, you were paying off a debt to someone. So uh, I do want to say that the stealing of man stealing or woman stealing and selling them into slavery was forbidden by Scripture. So uh, the Bible does not support slavery as we know it. All that to say this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now look what he says. This applies to us as employees. Not by the way of eye service or people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering good, uh, I'm sorry, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So he says, okay, work for the person. Uh, I'm going to make employee-employer application here because I think it, it transfers. Don't do it by eye service. What does that mean? I act one way when my boss sees what I'm doing. I act another way when he or she is gone. When corporate sends somebody down to the office, I'm very different than when corporate has no representative at the office. Then, I'm ver then I act a different way. So he's saying, don't do it when someone's watching you, and don't do it to be a people pleaser. So don't act a certain way so your boss likes you better, going to, you know, wants to give you a raise. Getting a raise is great, but all that. Don't do it just for them. You have another boss. You work for the Lord is what he says. Everyone in this room, your ultimate boss is the Lord. Do it as a servant of Christ is what he says. From the heart, rendering service to the Lord. Um, you know, whether you're slave or free. And if you are a boss or a master in this case, um, stop your threatening. Uh, knowing that you have a master. So if you if you are a supervisor of people, you answer to a supervisor outside of your company. That supervisor is the Lord. And so we're to supervise these people like we're doing it as a representative of the Lord. And if you're answering to a supervisor, you, you respect them and honor them as a person in their role, but you do it higher. Oh, you go over their head and you serve Christ in how you work. This, ver this passage alone, we didn't have to say any of this stuff else. This passage alone should say that your work is unto the Lord as an act of worship that is pleasing to Jesus uh, in your work. Paul is saying not to work um, in the sight of others for their commendation, but rendering service to the Lord. That means that that I don't work one way when someone may know. That means that all, all day long the Lord sees, am I being diligent? The Lord sees, am I keeping my word? The Lord sees, am I scrolling through my social media feed 
or for 30 minutes, or am I doing my work? The Lord sees that stuff. My boss may not know it. Uh, the, 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 the people that are paying me may know it. The people in the corporate office certainly may never know it. But the Lord knows it. And that should view how we, how we work and how we do our jobs. I have in your outline here, answering the question, for whom do I work, makes all the difference. That makes all the difference. I work for the city of Philadelphia. That's great. Actually, you work for Jesus. I work for uh, Central High School as a teacher. Great. You actually work for Jesus. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm self-employed. No, you don't work for you. You work for Jesus. You work for Jesus. And so that's, that's really helpful. I had a guy in my church. I, I'm not sure this is totally theologically accurate, but he made a great point. He said to me, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ disguised as a computer programmer. That's what he told me. So what, what was he saying in that? He's saying he did have an identity. He took his work seriously. I'm a computer programmer. But my core identity is not computer programmer. My core identity is disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what animates me. And that's true for all of us. My core identity is not husband. It's not father. It's not friend. It's not pastor. Uh, it's not employee of Grace Church where I work. My core identity is follower of Jesus Christ, who happens to wear different hats. So that, that, that would really, really help us in, in how we think this through. Okay, I'm going to move fast to the rest. Number seven, our work is a primary context to love our neighbor. Doesn't it just sound so vague? Love your neighbor as yourself. We just, what does that mean? That means the annoying person in the cubicle next to you. That means the demanding client that you cannot do enough to satisfy. That means the boss uh, that has never thanked you or commended you for what you do. Those are your neighbors. So loving your neighbor, we do that in our job um, more than uh, perhaps any other place. When we talk about, like Philippians 2, considering others more important than ourselves, who do you work with? Who do you work for? Those are who we're to do that with. Number eight, our work is a primary context for witness. Um, depending on your job, in your outline I have here, it, you probably have more opportunity to connect with unbelievers through your school or through your work than any other sphere of your life. Now, that may not be true of everyone in the room. Like if you worked like by yourself, if you were like an author or something and, you know, you send something once a year to a publisher and an editor, okay, maybe you don't interact with as many people. But most jobs, you interact with other people. And so Matthew 5 in your outline says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Most of us on our job have more opportunity to shine good works before Christ and love others there than any other place. If you're a student, that's for sure true in school. I don't know that I've ever had a better opportunity than when I was in high school to be around a bunch of people that I saw all the time or college to be able to witness. So, so that is true. So through your quality of your work, your attitude, your speech, your integrity, you have an opportunity to be a witness at work. Um, God's given everybody a mission, and for most of us, the primary field is your work environment. You know, one of the most exciting things for me at church is when I meet a guest, a guy comes up to me and says, hey, this is Joe. I work with him, and he came to church today. I want you to meet him, a new guy. That says volumes to me. First of all, it says that guy's come out. He's like out of the closet as a Christian. He's not, he's not hidden as a, as a closeted Christian at work. He's come out because he's invited somebody to church. And he must be living faithfully enough on the job 
that when he invited the person to church, the guy said, what? You go to church? No, come on. Is that a joke? There must have been enough integrity in his life that the person would actually come to church with him. So it says a ton. When somebody brings their coworker to church, it says to me, this guy's living it by God's grace in his office or in his workplace. Number nine, our work is a means to provide for our family's needs and the needs of others. So work is about more than a paycheck, but it's not, worth, it's not about less than a paycheck. Money does matter. First uh, Timothy 5 says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Um, Ephesians 4 says, let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So in the church of Ephesus, people are coming out of the world, getting saved. Some people are thieves. Guy gets converted, and he's saying, now stop stealing and do hard work. And what's the purpose of that work? Well, the glory of God, we know that from other passages, but so that you have something to give to other people. So part of our work, if you thought about that, I'm laboring to be positioned to be a blessing to others. I'm laboring, I'm, I'm laboring for resources so that I can invite someone over and feed them at my house, or I can pick up the check at the restaurant, or I can, um, I can help a neighbor in need. I love what John Wesley, who was um, an evangelist um, in the 1700s, he said, you may have heard this famous quote by him, he said, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. I don't know how you do all those three at the same time, you gotta, gotta budget, you gotta work that out, right? But he said, make all you can. Why? So you could live a selfish, indulgent lifestyle? No. Make whatever you can, whatever God's afforded you, because then you will be able to save for another day, and you'll be able to give and be a blessing to other people in need. Number 10, God satisfies us through our work. Philip says in his book here, probably every man has tasted at some time the deep satisfaction of a job well done. Why does labor have this inherent value? Because we were made for it. God placed Adam in the garden and put him to work. So most all of us in our job have had some day where it's like, man, everything went great. Or this week, or this quarter, or this year. There's some satisfaction. We accomplished something. Our team at work reached a goal. Or we finished the house I was working on. Or we, uh, we delivered the, you know, the software product that's completed. Or whatever it is you do. There's a time where there's something satisfying. If you're a teacher, graduation day, these kids made it, you know, wonderful. There's some kind of, God wants us to have a satisfaction in our work that thanks him for the opportunity, thanks him for the abilities, thanks him for the opportunity to be a blessing to others, to do something that makes a difference, to accomplish something through our work, and to find a sense of satisfaction. If, If if, he's, if Adam and Eve are gardening, there's, there's a joy in the harvest. Um, you know, the Bible even says that. Bringing in the harvest, we come rejoicing. There's a rejoicing as we bring in the, the harvest. Okay, let me say this, because this is important. Uh, while God wants us to be satisfied in him through our work, there's two errors, two ditches that we can fall in. I think there are two great errors. One error is this. Work is everything. And the other error is this, work is nothing. So we can have two extremes. If Here's work is nothing. You know what? I just work long enough to get a paycheck till I can do the really important stuff. Get home and love my wife. Get home and be a faithful dad. Get home and, and serve the small group. Uh, you know, uh, get home and, 
do whatever I do. I, so my work is only a means to the end, and the end is getting to the really godly spiritual stuff. That is thinking way too little of our jobs. That's thinking too, that not enough of our jobs because God wants to use our work as an expression of our discipleship. It's, it's failing to see, it's failing to integrate our faith and our work together. God wants us to embrace his calling where we are to engage what's in front of us for the good of others. So it's not just a means to get to the weekend where you can do godly stuff or where you can do family stuff or to make enough money that you can take a vacation and make a memory with your family. That's all great. But God wants you to, to there's value in the work. So that's thinking too little of our job. The other side, which is true of some of us in the room for sure, is making our job everything. It's too important to us. So our identity rises and falls with the success or failure of our job. Our identity is connected to getting that promotion. So it, then it becomes an idol for me. How much I make, what my title is, how successful I am, what my boss thinks about me, that's everything. And when your work becomes too much to you, then you will be willing to, for that idol of making money, building a good reputation, um, you know, making enough to retire early, wh whatever it is your job, being thought of as successful, being the best salesperson in the company, which is a great, that's great to be the best salesperson. But when that drives everything else, here's what can happen. We compromise our other callings. And so because work is everything, we cheat on our marriage. I, I don't mean literally adultery, but we, we don't give time to our wives. We come home exhausted and we don't give time to our kids. We work so hard that we don't steward our bodies and we ruin our health because we work seven days a week when God says you're to Sabbath and rest. Um, we work so hard and put so much into our identity, into our work, that we don't have time for friendships. You know, our mental health suffers. Workaholism is a real thing. But let's call it what it is. It's an idolatry. It's finding my identity in my success. Or it's finding my identity and having security and having enough money so that I feel safe, as opposed to saying I'm trusting God. Uh, the workday's done. I'm going home. I'm going to be with my family if you're married. I'm going to go to bed at a reasonable hour. There's times to work extra hours and work really hard. There's seasons of that. But when that's our lifestyle, there's a problem. And what happens then is work is not a means to the end of glorifying God. Work is the end of glorifying me, myself. Here's a quote I'm going to repeat to you at least twice. It's not in your outline, but I want you to hear this because I think this quote reflects our culture guy named Gordon Dahl, I don't even know who he is, but this is what he said. Our problem today is that we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. Let me say it again. Our problem today is that we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. What's he saying? We worship our work, we make that our ultimate. And our whole identity is tied to our work, and that's idolatry. We work at our play. We've got a hobby that we work very hard and invest so much into that. You know, uh, I'm not going to I don't want you to think any hobby is bad, but uh, you ever heard of a golf widow? That's a, that's a woman who's married to a man whose life is committed to golf so that all his days off, he's out chasing a ball up and down a course, and she's left alone. She's a golf widow. That's someone who works at their play. They, they take their play so serious that they compromise other values, and we play at our worship. I'll go when I can go. If it works out and convenient, 
I'll go to church, serve. No, I kind of sit in the back. That, that, that's the way a lot of us are. A lot of people, we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. And yet that's very different than God's called us to. So how do we respond to the message that I've shared with you just now? Well, we, we get an opportunity to apply this. Um, if all of life's for the glory of God, you're going to apply it right when you walk out of the room, whatever you're doing. But as a worker, we start with this. God is a worker. We're created in God's image. We're created to work. And specifically work is given to Adam was to create things and to maintain things. So uh, creative jobs and security protection maintenance jobs are of equal value. Work is a gift from God. Uh, Because of the fall, work is hard. Work is not a result of the fall, but the difficulty and toil of work is a result of the fall. God redeems our work. He doesn't make work easy, but he changes the worker so that now, once we're redeemed, we have Uh, we can live all of life for the glory of God and our work has a new purpose because we're not doing it just for the boss, just for the client, just for ourselves. We're doing it as a servant to Jesus. So redemption changes the whole value of work and everything else in our life. The resurrected Lord is on mission. He is converting and redeeming and saving people on his way to making all things new. And our work is part of that. It's as God changes people and places and things, our work is to help others flourish. It's to bring relief to the suffering. It's to bring opportunity to others. It's to provide goods or services that make life good for other people. So we can, we're, we're given meaningful work no matter what we're doing. The challenge is to lean on God and keep a right perspective so that we don't fall in one ditch, which is work is nothing. I'm just doing this to get to the really meaningful stuff like marriage, family, and church, small group, serving, uh, that kind of stuff. That's, that's a wrong view. And work is also, not on the other side, everything so that our identity, all of our time is about making money and climbing uh, our, our job profession to, to, to bigger and better. So that's everything to us. It's keeping it in balance. It's It's Wesley, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. It's working hard and doing a good job for the glory of God, for those we serve, our our company, our clients. It's serving others. Work is not meaningless. It is for the glory of God, but neither is work ultimate. The glory of God is ultimate, and work is a means to that end. So the application of this message, when you get up Monday to go to work, maybe some of you work tomorrow, I don't know, but when you get up Monday to go to work, it is to live a dependent life, realizing that God wants your work to be worshiped to him, but he's using it to keep you in a place of dependence. He's using it as a place of disciple. Your primary context of discipleship from an hour's point of view is your job where you are seeking to follow Jesus, uh, do work, which is worship in itself, valuable unto itself, but also represent him as a light in the darkness, asking for his power, asking for his help um, so that you can create and maintain the garden that he has placed you in, uh, so that you can steward the relationships that he's given you, and so that you can find fruit in the calling that takes more hours than any other in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of work. We confess There are parts of our jobs we do not like that are hard, uh, that feel meaningless at times. But, Lord, we just say that you are a worker, and work is good, and we want to image you. We want to be faithful workers who bring glory and honor to you. 
Uh, Lord, and I pray for men in the room who are struggling with their work. Lord, maybe they've never really thought of it as a context for discipleship, as an act of worship, as a place to cultivate their need for you, as a place to see you work in them and through them, as a place to connect what they're doing to your mission in the world as they, as they uh, act for the flourishing of other people and serve others. I, so I pray for every man that you would bring a dignity and a value in his own mind as he considers his work. Help him to consider what he does and how it is uh, creating and developing or how it is protecting and maintaining and ordering. You've called us to these things, and I pray that you would help us to see the value. Lord, I pray for anyone in the room that doesn't have work and is looking for work. Uh, I pray that you would provide jobs. It's a tough economy for some, and I pray that you would provide jobs for men in the room who don't have work. For men in the room who have a specific gifting and ability, and yet they haven't been able to find work in that job, that line, I pray that you would open doors for them. Help them to be faithful today in the in-between, but open doors if you have another place for them to use their skill and, and to, to use their gifts. For those in the room who are underemployed, Lloyd, I pray, I pray that as they're faithful where they are, that you would expand their opportunity, that you would expand their, um, their opportunities for work, that, um, that you would, uh, uh, Lord, help them to grow in what they do. Help every man in the room grow in his skills so that he brings value and blessing to others. Lord, if I pray for men in the room who have a, a harsh boss, an uncaring boss, um, a boss that, is, uh, uh, that hoards praise and gratitude and doesn't give it very often. I pray for every one of them that you would help them to have a vision of you, Lord, that they work ultimately for you and give them perseverance to, to stay faithful where they are even when it's often unrecognized or even where the demands are unrealistic. I pray for that, Lord. Um, I pray for any man in the room who's under-emphasizing work that, Lord, you'd help them to see the value of it and I pray for any man that's caught in the idolatrous trap of workaholism, that you would free them and give them help to get into a balanced, uh, a balanced life of work. Um, so, Lord, I pray for every man here in all these areas. Help us to have the right view of work. Uh, help us to, to uh, engage it for your glory and for the good of others. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.